0: I wanted Public Enemy to be The Clash, you know, hardcore about politics, respected in a Clash Bob Marley sort of way. My partners, both Chuck D and Hank Shockley, said, you know what, we need to put Flavor Flav in the group. I said, what, are you kidding? Flavor? (laughs) This is like putting Harpo Marx into the Beatles. No, you can't do this. But then I relented. And it was one of the best overruling decisions that I've ever had.
1: Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA, and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas.
2: And I'm your co-host Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vain Glorious.
1: Our guest today co-produced Public Enemy's incredible debut album, Yo Bum Rush the Show, original Def Jam Records president Bill Stephanie.
2: We're gonna to talk to Bill about the time Public Enemies sprinkled artificial flavor on a gig, how the Beastie Boys pumped up a grand finale, and how Rick Rubin literally buried his record company at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery.
1: So without further ado, let's go to the TMEP show.
2: It really puts perspective on things, so it doesn't right? even too much. There's oh, too yeah, much I think perspective now.
1: Alex, one of the most exciting times in my life was being part of the Chicago music scene in the early 90s. After Athens, Georgia got hot in the early 80s, then Minneapolis got hot in the late 80s, and then there was the whole Seattle grunge thing. Chicago was the next place to be, and the Falling Millennials just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Yeah, I mean, you and I met right around that time. I think that was around the time we got our big three and a half out of four star review in the Chicago Tribune. And you know we were just trying to piggyback like everyone else off the success of the Smashing Pumpkins and Liz Fair who really drew attention to the scene and the scene could support that kind of attention because there were so many great bands, Urge Overkill, Fig Dish, Wilco, Triple Fast Action, Naked Ray Gun, Veruca Salt, and, you know, my two favorites that were Menthol and our good friend, Matt Walker's band Cupcakes.
2: There were great clubs too supporting that scene. There was the Metro, Double Door, Lounge Axe, Elbow Room, The Empty Bottle, Beat Kitchen, the list goes on. And I got to work in many of those, both as a tour manager and as a band member. And we played all those clubs
1: except Lounge Axe, which for some reason wouldn't give us the time of day. You had to be cool to play there, Alan. Come on. We played Double Door a lot and that was far cooler. And you know what? <laughs> no matter what club you were playing, there were AR people camped out in the audience. Everyone was getting signed. And unfortunately, the Falling Walendas kind of Jumped the gun too early. We signed the first deal we were offered and it was a small new label that didn't have much cachet, and didn't have much money and didn't have much experience. But the flip side to that was we got to make two albums where a lot of bands only got to make one and we had total creative control. So that was great. But you know, to this day I still wonder what if, what if we'd waited a little longer, maybe we would have signed to a major label maybe we would have had major label success. I don't know. Actually, yes, I do know we would have been huge if I would have just cooled my jets a little bit. Damn it! (laughs) All in all, we were in a great city with a really talented group of bands at a really significant period in time for music, and so I can't complain too much.
2: Uh, Yeah, yeah, actually, you can, and you have for the past 25 years, okay? (laughs) But anyway, we're here to talk today about Bill Stephanie, and he was part of an even hotter scene in New York in the early 80s at the very genesis of hip-hop, and I think it's fair to say Bill made the most of it.
1: I think you could even go further to say Bill helped change the face of music.
2: Hmm. Well, I think that's the right effing perspective to have, Alan, and we'll hear more about his work with Public Enemy, the Beastie Boys, and Rick Rubin just ahead. But first, listeners, if you haven't yet followed us on Instagram or Facebook, please do. We're at TMEP Show. We'll be right back with Bill Stephanie after a short break.
1: Now a man who is eyewitness to Rick Rubin's infamous attempt at film directing, In the 1988 flick, Tougher Than Leather, original Def Jam president, Bill Stephanie.
2: Bill, we're so pleased to have you on the show today. Let's jump right in. So in the film, this is Spinal Tap, one of the band's most deflating moments is when the miniature Stonehenge monument descends to the stage in the middle of a concert, You actually had what I'd call the opposite experience. You had an inflating spiral tap moment while performing with the Beastie Boys. Could you tell us about
0: that? Well, yeah, you know, Alex, when the Beastie Boys' rise starts to happen in 1986 upon the release of their album License to Ill, they're about to embark on a national tour and their first big show was at this club in the East Village called the Ritz. And the Ritz around that time was like the place. If you wanted to see Madonna, Duran Duran during that period, before anybody did huge venues, they'd stop by the Ritz. So the Beasties planned their first huge show and their DJ, DJ Hurricane, couldn't make that show. He was on the road with Run DMC, who at that point their uh, collaboration with Aerosmith, a remake of Aerosmith's classic "Walk This Way," is just burning up the charts. So both Mike D and Ad Rock from the group, and MCA as well, may he rest in peace. Approach me, you know, I kind of a little bit look like I could be Hurricane's brother, and at that point I am the promotions person. For Def Jam. So, you know, I have a gig. I have responsibilities promoting great music from LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys and upcoming Public Enemy and Slick Rick and Slayer and Danzig and all of these great groups. So, I'm good. Not to them. <laughs> Bill, we're recruiting you to be our DJ for this big rich show. You have no choice. <laughs> now, during this time, the Beasties were planning to close their shows with just this incredible quote-unquote climax, which would be an inflatable penis rising up from the back of the stage. And as the inflatable penis rises to its fullest potential, that would be the closing of the show. (laughs) So, as I'm rehearsing with them and getting ready for the big show, I really engage in just a review of my life and its value and worth. <laughs> I had gone to college on a communications media scholarship, sponsored by a rock and roll radio station from Long Island at that point, WLIR. It was co-sponsored by the National Urban League, which was, you know, one of the top civil rights organizations in the country. So there were some expectations added to my career and into my life, and <laughs> you, so you juxtapose with the fact I'm going to be on stage with a rising penis in the offing. So <laughs> we did the gig. It went fantastically. Uh, it was written up in New York Times. There's a review, I think, by the great writer John Perellis of that first show. And things went well. Luckily, we did not bring out the rising penis for that show. I think the penis only lasted for a couple of shows as <laughs> DJ Hurricane came back. And then it was retired for other mayhem that the Beastie Boys engaged in when they were on the stage.
1: <laughs> that sounds like your Bonehenge moment. Bonehenge. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you were the first president of Def Jam Records, right?
0: I was there <laughs> you know, as Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons were building their dynasty.
1: Well, that's an interesting point because obviously Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons had kind of a interesting dynamic, and we talk about band dynamics on this show a lot. You were kind of the Derek Smalls in the relationship; you were the (laughs) lukewarm water between the fire of Rick Rubin and the ice of Russell
0: Simmons. Yeah, and I'm a bass player, so you know, I guess it all (laughs) right, totally. It all does match. Yeah, in an environment which was active, creative, wild. Again, it's the Beastie Boys. And between 1985 through 1989, there's the business marriage between Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, but then there's also Russell Simmons' management company, Rush Productions. And they're managing virtually every rapper at that point in the business, ranging from Curtis Blow to, to Eric B. and Rakim, a Jazzy Jeff, and the Fresh Prince. So, to navigate just that period of intense innovation, creativity, wildness, that downtown era of new wave and punk and hardcore and clubs like CBGBs—that that it's all really one, merged together. So, whether it was in the office of Def Jam, working with Rick and Russell, or being amongst all of that, I just thought I had a place to be the sober guy. Not necessarily the suit, but the guy who's going to make sure that the office is running, that we're working well with our partners at CBS Records, that everything is operating as the two creators who put the company together get to be creative.
2: That's a real art form in my experience. Being able to tread that line between the creative folks and bless them all their eccentricities the things that really make them creative and having to keep the proverbial trains
0: running on time and somebody's got to do it. You know, I got to a point cause I was on the creative side too. I was producing public enemy and I was in the studio every night and then would get to the office by about 11 AM. So, you know, I'm not getting any sleep, but you know, everybody's young. There really had to be some sort of adult in the room. So I figured, look, Russell Simmons, Rick Rubin, the Bomb Squad of Hank Shockley and D producing PE records. The Beasties themselves, LL Cool J was a great producer on his own right. You know, we had all of these creative folks, but we had a dearth of folks who could be in the office. So I always had that creative instinct as part of my personality, but then I just saw what the need was for an administrator while you know we're selling millions of LL Cool J and Beastie Boy and Public Enemy records.
1: But you're a young man at the time, right? You sound like you were preternaturally mature to be able to become <laughs> the business guy in that room.
0: Chuck D. says that when I was 19, I was actually 40 years old. He'll <laughs> <laughs> go around saying, that. oh yeah, he's been 40 forever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's talk about Chuck D. for a second, because you gave him what I think is one of the most consequential pieces of advice in music history. You told him he should start the rap version of The Clash, and that was the impetus behind the creation of Public Enemy,
0: right? Yeah, it was a team effort. I was lucky to attend Adelphi University during the years that Carlton Ridenour, aka Chuck D., was also studying at the school, and this is 1982-ish. Yeah. And I'm just starting on our college radio station to play hip-hop. I'm 19. I'm going to the uh, university cafeteria to get my daily lunch. And I see a guy in a silk DJ crew jacket emblazoned on the back, Spectrum City. Now, Spectrum City was like the cool DJ unit for Long Island during those years. All the great hip-hop R&B parties for teens of that time were DJ'd by Spectrum City. So, I'm scratching my head. How could somebody so cool from Spectrum City be on the Adelphi campus? So, I approach him and so I said, hey, man, I'm Bill Stephanie. I go by the name Mr. Bill on 90.3 FM WBAU. I play hip-hop. And he said, yeah, I know who you are. I listen to you. Big fan of what you're doing on the radio station. So, I said, hey, man, would you? Spectrum City consent to coming up to my show and and to the station. And that meeting in 1982 became the foundation for Public Enemy and for the later considerations of taking the idea of, in essence, merging the clash with Run-DMC. It's without question a mashup of what were the two impacting groups from 1984-ish, and I was lucky to attend the Clash's show in New York City at Bonds International. You couldn't get tickets, but the owners of the station somehow snuck a ticket to me, and that's where I got to see Joe Strummer and Mick Jones and the whole crew and said, hey, this is rock and roll. I think they're fantastic. So when I got the opportunity via Rick Rubin, of taking my college classmate and turning him into an artist or an entity that would have some sort of value on Def Jam, the idea of merging just those two fantastic groups along with the genius of Chuck and our production team with Hank Shockley just all came together and the rest became, as they say, history. Wow. Boy,
2: how did Flavor Flav come into the mix? He must have, well, needless to say, added some interesting chemistry to the whole thing.
0: Sure, sure. Now, Flavor went by the name MC DJ Flavor Flav, and he wasn't affiliated. This is before Public Enemy. He was basically from the same neighborhood that Chuck and the Spectrum City DJ Collective came from. He was from Freeport, Long Island, which is where Public Enemy. Eddie Murphy, and Howard Stern, all hail from. Hmm. So, Flavor was friends with the group, and he was just this character who hung around our college radio station, attended the gigs that Spectrum City DJed. He was a rapper, he was a singer, he was a musician. He could play piano, and and he could drummer. I mean, he was this weird guy. You know, I sometimes compare Flavor to um, the Marx Brothers in that one of the uh, the Marx Brothers was Harpo Marx, who was the clown of the group. Right. But then, you know, Harpo would sit down on a harp and then, you know, he'd wind up playing Tchaikovsky and, you know, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and then when you went to shake his hand, he'd give you his foot. So Flavor had that sort of element where... He was usually the cut-up, but then you'd see under that veneer of clowning behavior that he was kind of a genius too. (laughs) It was just this weird thing. So, I would do my uh, college radio rap show and he'd walk around, and this is still during the period when we had cassettes, and he would have about 40 cassettes of his own music. Of all sorts of different songs and raps, uh, different things that he was working on, and you could hear them sort of jingle jangle in the bag that he was. <laughs> you could hear him coming, because, <laughs> uh, and I'm shaking my head. Oh my gosh, Flavor's going to come into my studio. He's going to make me play one of his raps, claustrophobia attack, whatever. You know, uh, I, I can't deal with this. So when we were putting together Public Enemy, again, I you know I wanted. PE to be The Clash, respected, you know, hardcore about politics, respected in a Clash Bob Marley sort of way. My partners, both Chuck D and Hank Shockley, said, you know what, we need to put flavor in the group. I said, what, are you kidding? (laughs) Flavor? This is like putting Harpo Marx into the Beatles. No, (laughs) we can't do this. No, we need flavor because Chuck has the preacher's voice And it's driving, and Chuck is basically, imagine Martin Luther King or Jesse Jackson if they were rappers. But in order to get the message to the people, for them to feel it, you need a counter to Chuck. Hmm. So, you know, yin-yang, let's put flavor in the group. First, I objected, but then I relented. And it was one of the best overruling decisions that I have ever had because those guys were completely right.
1: I remember hearing Yo Bum Rush the show when it first came out and being blown away by the contrast between Chuck D and Flavor Flav. It was like Chuck D was the shaving cream and Flavor Flav was the razor.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was amazing to see it develop. Because, again, we didn't have any notions of creating a group with Chuck and Flavor. Chuck actually had a different partner in a different group prior to Public Enemy. So they actually went into the studio and recorded two singles. It really didn't do anything. But he had a partner, Aaron Allen, who went by the name Butch Cassidy. But things didn't work out. So when we did Public Enemy, I think Chuck and Hank took that configuration that seemed to have a little bit of traction for that single that didn't go anywhere, but now married perhaps to the larger concept of the rapping version of The Clash. You're on Def Jam, which is already a hit label with LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys, were affiliated and distributed by Columbia Records. The label of Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel, all of those variables seem to come together to... Develop something pretty special. So, flavor and the role that he
2: played and how it kind of came to be, you'd sense he was a mercurial character. Didn't he disappear from time to time?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, he just has that personality to be engaging wherever and whenever. And sometimes that level of engagement will uh, keep you away from. <laughs> Your priority is and even your group early on. So there was a point, the group was on tour. They're in a the city, they're about to jump on stage and there's no flavor. Chuck can go out there, but what's <laughs> going to happen without flavor? This is a frightening prospect. <laughs> so I don't know if it was Chuck. I don't know if it was the road manager. But anyone familiar with PE knows that they have a group that sort of serves as on stage security. They're called Security of the First World. Mm. So one of the members, you know, he kind of looked like Flavor. He was fairly thin, pretty much the same complexion, pretty much the same height. So someone on the road scratched their head and said, you know what? If we put the hat. If we put the sunglasses, if we put a clock around his neck (laughs) and he just does the movements and lip syncs from a distance, who's really going to (laughs) know? And guess what? Nobody knew the better. So 35 years later, we still refer to that as the artificial flavor moment.
1: (laughs) Hey, listeners, decide for yourself if there's a reason why Alex and I are unheralded musicians. At the end of every episode, we're going to play one of our songs. So stick around. So, Bill, what is your favorite moment in This Is Spinal Tap and why?
0: I know that I personally related to Artie Fufkin. (laughs) So brilliantly played (laughs) by Paul Schaefer. I was in the middle of a number of failed in stores, too. (laughs) You know, where nobody showed up, where you just say, hey, please kick my behind. And I tried to use those experiences to keep my career going. But Spinal Tap as just an artistic expression, just great. It's very much a New York film as a New Yorker because you have Rob Reiner, you have Michael McCain, Christopher Guest, Fran Drescher, Bruno Kirby, Billy Crystal, all of that sort of humor, Borscht Belt, Catskills filtered into a rock and roll experience for a different younger generation. And it's just like the jokes just kept on hitting, you know, <laughs> mime is money it is so Catskills Borscht Belt to me. Having rewatched it after not seeing it for a long time, I mean, it was as fresh and funny to me. And... um I enjoyed it, I think, now more than I did even back then. It's a wonderful, wonderful statement.
1: Okay, okay. Let's do a little experiment here. Bill, say you were the manager of Spinal Tap instead (laughs) of Ian Faith. What would you have done differently to ensure that band's success or to at least avoid what they went through?
0: I don't know if I could have done anything differently. I think he was spot on trying to manage everything, trying to manage the artwork, trying to manage relationships between the band with the label, you know, battling the yoko of the group. He balanced it I I thought pretty well. And ultimately, sometimes the market makes a decision. And the market at a certain point said to the group that you worked until it doesn't work. It's sometimes hard. It's like working with an athlete where they've had a great run, but there's a point even for Michael Jordan where uh, father time, mother nature becomes undefeated and it's time to figure out something else You know, for David and Nigel.
2: At a certain point, you can only smash so many televisions with a cricket
0: bat and the impact becomes diminished over time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Muted, sure. Uh, hey,
0: man, I wish I had that cricket bat on many occasions, for sure. Bill, you seem so chill.
1: I can't imagine you wielding a cricket bat like that.
0: You know, the thing about hip hop, you're taking young people sometimes from the harshest environments, and one minute, they literally can be living in a housing project with 10 relatives in a two-bedroom apartment. And- within a blink of an eye, given a check by Atlantic Records for $2 million. You know, it's hard to contemplate that sociological jump and that financial jump to go from the projects to now a seven-figure valuation. Um, You know, I was brought in as a consultant for a very high-profile, young African-American vocalist who's still a superstar. But his label just, they were at wit's end. So they thought, let's bring in the public enemy guy. And <laughs> he's on the board of the National Urban League and the Apollo Theater. And he writes op-eds for the Times. Maybe he can talk some sense. Mm-mm, no, I couldn't. I needed the cricket bat. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going to If I hit you in the head, young brother, you know, <laughs> that's where those frustrations can come in because you want to help out. And a lot of times, for various reasons—historical, sociological—some of the artists can get in their own way. So, yes, that's where the bat comes in. <laughs> so, what would you call
1: the black version of this is Spinal Tap?
0: Oh, we did. It was called CB Four.
2: There you go. Easy one. There's a soft <laughs> Easy hole one. A one. layup. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Okay, let me just tell our listeners uh, who don't know what CB4 is. CB4 is a movie from 1993 that Bill produced starring Chris Rock, and it's a mockumentary about a rap band.
2: Well, you know what I loved about seeing that film, Bill? I thought it was super cool, actually, that right up front, there were all those icons Talking about CB four like EZE and Ice T and Ice Cube and and even the butthole surfers thrown in for good measure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was um, especially for Eazy-E because you know CB four is in essence a parody of NWA. So for EZE for Cube that they had enough sense of humor to endure parody. You know, we thought was cool to have a young Shaquille O'Neal.
1: Oh my God, almost unidentifiable. Yeah, right. You know, I Let me just interrupt you for a second to tell you a little Shaquille O'Neal story of my own. So I was in LA, like in the mid-90s with my band, and we were at Jerry's Famous Deli in the middle of the night. It must have been like three in the morning. And one of my bandmates came out of the bathroom and said, I think I just ran into Shaq's Shoes.
0: Because his his shoes- The size twenty-two, Yeah, totally. And
1: next thing I know, Shaquille O'Neal comes out of the bathroom, and he sits in a booth with this odd assortment of people. It was um, a transgender individual, a prostitute, and a toady. It was completely out of like a Fellini film, because Shaq didn't say a word. He's just sipping on a Coke. And everyone else was just having this crazy conversation, and we were just in awe watching the whole thing, really amused by it.
0: Wow. Uh, Jerry's great place. Great place where, you know, Rick Rubin would hold court.
1: Oh, really? When
0: uh, he came out to Los Angeles and formed American Records. First, Deaf American Records. And there's a story there. And then uh, it uh, later on became American Records. Tell us the story. Well, there was the death of deaf. Oh, right. Right, right, right. So, you know, Rick founded Deaf Jam recording. It's not Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons. It's Rick Rubin. He creates the label in his dorm room at NYU. And then later, after releasing one single, he meets Russell Simmons. And the two of them decide to become a partner in the company and and build it up. So, after their years of partnership and success together and they decide to go their separate ways, Rick brings his new label, Deaf American Records, out to Los Angeles and he's doing Rick Rubin, a combination of hip hop and rock and roll. So the Black Crows and the Ghetto Boys are uh, basically on the same label right? under Deaf American. But there was a certain point where Rick felt that he was becoming detached from hip hop. He's out in California. He doesn't have the same connections to the music or the culture that he had when he was in New York. So he decides to have a ceremony in LA called the Death of Deaf. The ceremony was, in essence, going to be a funeral for Deaf being attached to American, of which the eulogy and the ceremony itself would be overseen by the Reverend Al Sharpton.
2: Oh my goodness.
0: Along with that, the future of American recordings now would be presented and dissected at the ceremony by the amazing kreskin the mentalist (laughs) my assignment was to perform the kaddish the jewish prayer for the dead in hebrew now clearly i'm not jewish (laughs) i know no hebrew luckily i convinced rick otherwise and i just wrote a poem about def Jen. Yiddish. Not in <laughs> <laughs> not, not not in Yiddish, but you know, I've had enough spilkus in, and Suris in my career to get over. It was as motley a crew of human beings ever assembled. Tom Petty attended. He's in the audience. Amazing. Roseanne Arquette. I mean it's just it's sort of like the inflatable penis <laughs> moment. You know, once again, I'm assessing my life and my career as I'm you know, I'm looking around. Just weirdness, but that's what made all of this stuff so exciting and fun. I am so delighted
2: to hear that story, Bill. And please confirm or deny whether this part of things is urban legend, but didn't Rick also buy a plot at Hollywood Forever Cemetery? Yes, he did. (laughs) To bury the words deaf or something like that?
0: We all went there. (laughs) Is it there? I don't know if it's still there, but it might be. And I'm forgetting the bowling alley nearby that we went to, to have the repast.
2: Unbelievable. Yeah. For our listeners who don't know Hollywood forever, that's a cemetery in LA where multiple film stars from the golden era of Hollywood yeah. are resting in peace and that kind of thing. The Ramones are there. Really?
1: Yeah. Johnny Ramones there. It's amazing. Yeah.
2: Well, all I can say is (laughs) Rick Rubin took that funeral to 11. There's no question about that.
0: Yeah, he definitely took it to 11.
2: You were at the founding of Public Enemy. And as your career moved on, you aligned yourselves with other artists who were some of the most creative and provocative in their genres, like Paul Mooney and people that were making serious social and cultural commentary. So was that a deliberate kind of thing that you were looking for? or Was this more serendipity? It was serendipity.
0: Half of the year, I lived in the Mondrian Hotel on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood working on Hollywood films as a music supervisor. So I'm at the Mondrian which sits directly across Sunset Boulevard during those years from the Comedy Store which was the absolute palace for stand-ups so for every now and then I would head over to the Comedy Store to check out stand-ups my wife is a huge Paul Mooney fan and she had been just imploring me to check out Paul Mooney You know, Paul had already developed a reputation in the town as the creative muse for Richard Pryor, as a stand-up of his own right, of just tremendous ability and capability, and an observer of racial issues and race relations nonpareil. So I'm there one night just checking him out, and, you know, as Mooney would be, he'd say, I am the N-word vampire. I'm going to stay up all night. And for stand-ups, you're in the club and you get the red light. It's time for you to get off. He would watch that red light for about three hours (laughs) and just continue and continue. It's the early 90s. It's before Rodney King. It's before OJ. We're two years after Do the Right Thing and Spike. And I just thought, hey, you know, this guy not only talks about the issues, but he's really very funny. And I can't believe that nobody's working with him. He doesn't have a TV show, doesn't have a record label relationship, or people scared of him, so forth. So, I had a new record distribution deal with a company called Tommy Boy Records. So, I thought it made sense to work with Mooney, and I was lucky to spend about 10, 12 years consistently recording him, writing with him, sort of directing him on things that he already commented on. But, you know, sometimes you just need a Flavor Flav in your life, right? You need, you know, a hype man to allow for energy and sometimes even focus. And I tried to be that for him during those years and we were able to see his career go from the cool stuff that we did together to the rise of his stand-up career and then later he goes on to Chappelle and the overall recognition of his work and of his art and his impact, it really became self-evident when he did pass last year. I'm watching NBC Network Nightly News and, and Lester Holt comes on announcing You know his passing, and then they have a full package about his life. I'm like, Paul Mooney's on. If only he could see this now. He probably is, but I cannot believe that these people have me. Because he, you know, he he did a whole thing where he was condescending about everything. That they did something about COVID before they announced my death. I cannot believe it. That was Mooney.
1: He was kind of a throwback. I mean, he was uncompromising, and that was to his artistic benefit, but his career detriment. Look at him versus Pryor, right? Pryor kind of played the game, and that's why Pryor became huge. Mooney never played the game no. even on Chappelle they have to carve these Mooney segments right it's not like yeah, Mooney's yeah. introducing into sketches no Mooney is Mooney and let's see what we could do with uh Negro Damas. right I mean Negro Yes. he <laughs> has to be Mooney let's how can we work with that but he was Mooney right and and that's why he was so great
0: he did nothing but Chris Rock would always call him Mr. Black Saturday Night Yo know, was respected, but always was on the verge of an opportunity or stardom. But usually he did something to screw up that opportunity. You know, he had situations and circumstances that may have catapulted him to prior-like status, but he enjoyed the level that he was at because he had a certain freedom attached to that.
2: You working with the guy closely for 12 years. You must have come into
0: some crazy situations. Can you share something? I remember he had a, a huge show that we had put together for him in Washington D.C. at the Warner Theater. Oh, I mean, that's a beautiful theater. Yeah, oh, beautiful. Not far from the White House. Yeah, and you know it was this huge showcase that was very unique for his career. The day before, we're just driving around D.C. with a member of our staff who was, in essence, our Bobby Fleckman. And she's in the backseat with Mooney, and we're just joshing along, and she uh, looks and says, oh my gosh, look, there's a rabbit. It's so great to be in D.C. It's such a wonderful place. So Mooney, being as condescending as he could be (laughs) sometimes, says, excuse me, that is not a rabbit. That is a ghetto squirrel. You don't know the difference between a rabbit at this point And a plain old ghetto squirrel, well, I completely feel sorry for you. (laughs) And I looked, I said, yeah, I guess that kind of is a squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) But it was vintage Mooney of providing clarity when, you know, maybe that level of condescending clarity probably (laughs) wasn't needed. Oh, man.
1: That's a great story, Bill. You know, so much of life. Bill, is being at the right place in the right time. And it's really amazing because the late 70s, early 80s, especially in New York, are just an incredible creative crucible. That's the scene where you're at Rick Rubin and Def Jam, and you're kind of a hidden figure in the the whole mix. But it's got to be somewhat gratifying. In 2017, hip hop became the most streamed genre over rock. Like, who would have ever thought, right?
0: No one had a clue. And I think that was the secret for the sauce, that we weren't thinking about becoming anything other than having fun and being creative. You know, for me, it's the accident of birth and location. You know, all of this stuff is coming together. Hip-hop couldn't happen, or the merging of hip-hop and punk and thrash and dance, disco, the gay club scene. You know, that couldn't happen today in Manhattan just by virtue of the economics of being in the city. Those clubs and those areas where folks partied were abandoned factories on the Lower East Side and under Canal Street in uh, Lower Manhattan. You know, you had all of these open spaces, not only for music, but for art, and that's how you get Keith Herring and Andy Warhol, and Jean-Michel Basquiat. You know, My wife will get on me to this day because I was in clubs with Basquiat and paid no attention to him because he was just a guy, you
1: know?
0: He's just a cool guy who's, you know, so all right. He's in rap groups too, and they're telling me he's an artist, all right. Just part of the landscape of the tapestry. But that was just the specialness of that time and that moment that, There were no rules to music, to relationships, to thoughts, ideas. We were all just hanging out, trying to figure out how we could do something cool.
1: Bill, I can't tell you how much fun this has been. I mean, you lived through historic times and participated in historic things it's just incredible what we've talked about where can our listeners find out what you're up to today
0: there is an active project i'm trying to bring attention to it is the anthology of the history of hip-hop created in partnership with the smithsonian museum and the national museum of african american history and culture it features 129 songs from the history of of rap music, 1979 to 2013. So it goes from King Tim the Third and the Fatback Band and the Sugar Hill Gang in 1979 all the way up to Drake, and started from the bottom. Wow! This is not a definitive collection in any way, shape, or form because, you know, the idea was to create some sort of Tangible academic approach to the music in the culture and the package itself, created by Say Adams, who was our former art director at Def Jam, just is incredible. I'm part of the executive committee who put it together, and I think I wrote you know about five or, or six pieces that you can find in the anthology. Great, and where do people find it, Bill? I, I would say just, you know, throw it into Google National Museum of African American History or Smithsonian hip hop anthology and that will lead you to the website.
2: And your old collaborator Chuck D is in the mix on curating that as well, yeah?
0: Yeah, he brought me to it. And Quest Love and Bill Adler. Not easy to put together. We started working on this in two thousand fifteen. Whoa. And uh, so it took five, six years to get all the rights and, and the artwork and the wonderful photos. Uh, there are CDs for those who re- remember legacy technologies. <laughs> we wanted a tactile experience, a tangible experience. So we do have CDs, but there are ways obviously that, you know, the CDs can be converted so they can be enjoyed in a 2022 manner.
2: Bill. This was really special. Thank you so much for sharing your
1: stories. Thank you so much for coming. Not at all. This was so much fun.
2: You know, Alan, there's something uniquely energizing about being there at the start of something before it gets really big. I think our audience feels that way about us. (laughs) All two of them. (laughs) You know, and, and as Bill shared... There was the convergence of so many cool elements in New York City in the 80s. There was hip-hop, punk, and thrash, dance, disco, new wave. I mean, very few people, I suppose, could have foreseen where hip-hop would go or the cultural juggernaut that it would become. And I appreciate that Bill basically said that, right? They were just having fun. And while they knew something cool was happening... He certainly didn't have the hubris to say he expected it or or foresaw that it would be the huge thing that it is today. And I I appreciate that honesty.
1: You know, I think when the times are exceptional, it brings out the exceptional qualities of exceptional people. Yeah. Well, I bet no one's ever said exceptional three times in one sentence.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps that highlights my unexceptionalness, because as I have shared in a bunch of our conversations I was around in the early days of Radiohead during the Pablo Honey tour, and I can say the same for P.J. Harvey, Sarah McLachlan, and Sheryl Crow. I still look back on that as a really good fortune of being on tour with those folks, spending time with them early in their careers. And in fact, Sheryl's manager, Scooter Weintraub, even called me in the summer of 1994, shortly before she performed at Woodstock, which was a huge catapult for her career, He wanted to check and see if I wanted to become her tour manager. I ended up turning it down because I already had committed to the band, the samples, for the rest of that year. And I just started my own band. I was excited about that. And I didn't want to be gone for the next couple of years with Cheryl. But wow, I think back at what a ride that could have been.
1: In retrospect, that didn't make you happy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, that is arguably a significant missed opportunity for me. But it sure worked out great for Cheryl because the tour manager that she hired is still with her today, as far as I know.
1: If you find yourself in the midst of a scene that's percolating and full of creative innovation, sometimes that is a great opportunity for you to shine, right? I don't know if it's because the chinning bar is higher or just there is such inspiration. I know when I was in that scene in Chicago in the early 90s, I mean, you couldn't be a crappy band. The competition was way too stiff. So you really had to bring your A game every gig and every recording. And I think that when you are in a situation like that, sometimes it's hard to know
2: what to say yes to, what to say no to. And in hindsight, there's this coulda, shoulda, woulda thing about opportunities that may have been foregone. But um, all you can do is try to learn from those opportunities and use that experience to evaluate new things as they come your way, as well as recognizing that there's always luck involved.
1: There is luck involved. And I think the, I think something I've tried to teach my children is that not every opportunity is a good opportunity. You know, I had a movie. I was like not trusting the situation after the contracts were given to me. I was like, this does not feel right. And I backed out of it. And I was lucky because I found out later that was the right decision. And the next day after I backed out of that, Elizabeth Banks and her production team picked up my script and I had a... Much greater opportunity because I passed on that one shady one. That's smart. I hope
2: you're okay with the fact that I just passed on a million dollar (laughs) offer to purchase this podcast.
1: Alex!
2: Just didn't feel right to me. I think there's more we can do.
1: All I got to say is you're lucky this is on Zoom. (laughs) Thanks for that effing perspective, Alan. (laughs)
2: How many people get to come up with a revolutionary idea, like, I don't know, mashing up Run DMC and The Clash, and then help to bring it to fruition? We know one. Chuck D. said, most of my heroes don't appear on those stamps, but one of his friends appeared on the TMEP show. We'll take that. Thanks to Bill Stephanie for sharing his stories with all of us. And thanks to my friend Charles Tolbert for introducing us to Bill. Well played, Charles. Too Much Epping Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow our socials on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TMEP Show. And join our mailing list on our website. That's TMEPShow.com. Follow, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
1: Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Final Tap and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions.
2: This is Alex Hoffman. Along with my co-host Alan Keller, we want to thank you for listening. We'll go out with a song called Catch Up from my former band, The Glorious. I wrote this one in honor of trailblazers who are on the forefront of the music and other things we love, people like bill stephanie as it says in the chorus we have some catching up to do see you next time on too much effing perspective